I have to admit, episodes like this make me sigh a little bit. Just a little. Because it's not a bad episode. It is, in fact, the potential to be a great episode. Which is why I sigh a little bit. So here's the thing. I like the general uh, point of the episode, the theme, if you will. I like the acting. I like a lot of the presentation of the characters. I even like some of the ideas they present. Thing is, it feels too, ironically, given what we talked about last week, empty. It feels like everything just goes a little bit too easily and a little bit too smoothly. Now, there are ways around that. I'm not saying we need to show every single intermittent thing. And they do this once in the episode. At one point in time, they cut to uh, the Sovereign and leader Bozo Face. And the two of them are like, ah, and so we get the idea that this has been a long and involved and aggravating process. And I get that, and I like that. I also like that they don't actually show the conclusion of it. We get the implication, thanks to Picard's statement, the gatherers won't be an issue anymore, that a peace settlement was actually found between the two forces. But other than that, it feels like everyone's just like totally on board with this. Just bam, yeah, sure, why not, right? <sighs> But there's another reason that this episode kind of bothers me. And that's that, in my opinion, there's just too many moments where it gets too messagey. I've talked about this before, back in uh, uh, Who Watches the Watchers, which was otherwise actually a really good episode. It just kind of, there was that one scene which just kind of clunk because of how overt the, the soapboxing was. This really feels too much like a message show. And that bothers me. Even if I agree with the message, which I do in this case, this message is about ending the cycle of hatred. I've demonstrated this before. Let's use two completely fictional examples. Let's use apples and oranges. An apple hurts an orange, so an orange hurts an apple. So an apple hurts two oranges, so two oranges hurt four apples. So four apples hurt 50 oranges, so 50 oranges hurt 500 apples. And it just keeps going forever. This is the cycle of hatred. Now, I don't agree with that. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I know that sounds like a weird thing. I don't agree at a base philosophical perspective with the cycle of hatred. Because what the cycle of hatred is really about is vengeance. You hurt someone on my side of the line. Therefore, I will hurt someone on your side of the line. It really does boil back down to line mentality. Clan mentality, as most other people call that. I keep having to remind myself of that because I keep saying line mentality and people be going, huh? Clan mentality, right? Line. I'm on this side of the line. You're on that side of the line. You hurt someone here, we hurt someone there. I mean, that makes sense, right? That was necessary, really, for survival and existence at a certain point in human history. And then there's now. I also have to admit, though, I just don't understand the idea of punishing someone who happens to be related to a criminal because they happen to be related to a criminal, for example. I, I don't get that. I never have. I never will. So I get the message. But at the same time, what happens in this episode, just watch this, is they come across a Federation outpost which has been raided by the gatherers. Okay, So the Federation goes to the Akamarians. It's like, we got to deal with this, like right now. Notice Picard just makes that decision, just on his own. He doesn't consult Starfleet Commander or anything. I find that amusing. And then he gets there and he's like, all right, 
We're going to deal with this situation. And she says, excellent, with the help of the Federation, we will have, actually she says, with the help of the Starfleet, which is funny, we will have no problems at all hunting down all the gatherers and dealing with them. And Picard says, no, no, we're going to bring them back into the fold. And he says it as if that's just such a logical conclusion. And what comes across in this and several other scenes, and maybe I'm just being too, I don't know, sensitive to this, is the idea that the Federation is basically right and has to explain to others why they're wrong. And again, I agree with their opinion, but they come across as really condescending in several scenes. Well, of course we're going to go and try and make this work. A few additional details or lines or nuances would have helped this tremendously. Let me give you an example. One of the things that is mentioned is Picard says, there is a great deal to gain by this venture and very little to lose. Now, I agree with that, but at no point in time does anyone acknowledge the possibility of this venture failing. Why would they? Of course it's going to succeed. They're just going to see the light that the Federation is positing off of their bums or whatever. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Point being... Point being, they don't actually acknowledge the possibility of failure because they are so certain in the rightness of their cause. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because Yuda was certainly certain in her rightness of her cause. You know, the whole murder plot, right? We can laugh at her because her plot is all about vengeance. Whereas, you know, the Federation is all about peace. And therefore it's okay to have that sort of automatic certainty. If they had been like, you know, we will at least try. Very well, we will at least try. And then, you know, and then they leave. And then Picard's still in the... This is just like an additional scene. Picard's still in the meeting room. And Riker sits down and Picard says to Riker, All right, I've been in contact with Starfleet Command. They already have three more ships heading into the area. Should this venture fail, we are going to stop the gatherer incursion. And have Picard say that. I mean, you can't tell me Patrick Stewart can't act. Have Picard say that glumly. Like, as if that is something he very much does not want to happen. And have Riker, who is also capable of acting, you know, Jonathan Frakes, you know, respond with the same exact approach of, understood, sir, I'll, I'll start preparing and I'll have data, start getting information, or something, right? Getting across the idea that they acknowledge that while they believe what they're doing is right, that doesn't mean everyone else is going to see it that way. It would be a more realistic presentation and it would come across as less condescending. Other than that, I do like this episode, even though there's some very there's a really big logical gap later. So, we've got the gatherers who are raiders, and this is one of the first real perspectives we've seen on raiders in Star Trek. Now, we've seen a couple of other things being mentioned as raiders, like the Husnok, for example, or occasionally the Ferengi have been portrayed as raiders. But this is the first time we've had what we nowadays usually refer to as raiders. You know. <laughs> The, the Mad Max kind of a thing, right? And I actually wish they did more with this. The idea of these raiders being a, a larger issue within an entire region is very logical given their backstory and what we learn about them as a culture. And the idea that these aren't people who are actively malicious. These are not people who are, you know, fallout raiders, right? Instead, these are people who are scavengers, 
and are willing to kill if necessary. But the first step in that sequence is the scavenger and then the killer rather than the killer who happens to scavenge. I like that, and I think that fits in Star Trek. It even makes sense why they would accept this kind of offer of not having to do that anymore because the scavenging part was first. They weren't doing it for the killing. That brings me to my next real problem with this episode. I get that they were trying to contrast the perspectives, cultures, I don't know what word to use here, the personalities between the gatherers and the actual Akamarians. But the way they did that was they had the Akamarians almost universally presented by one person who is elderly and acts elderly. And they had the gatherers presented by people who, while not super young, are definitely younger actors and who basically act like drunk college frat boys. Now... That's already just kind of like, really? <laughs> okay. And yet, it makes it even sillier. There's this scene where he's like, here, drink this. He's like, no, I'm not going to drink this. He pulls it, <laughs> and then he drinks it before checking to make sure if it's actually good. Because it was just a joke. I mean, it's a little bit physical of a joke, but it's still just a joke. And they all just have a good laugh about it. And then the Sovereign says, barbarians. What? I would hate her to see my, my college back when I was going to school. Now, I know that, you know, there's extremes that you can get to here that are much worse within that kind of rowdy philosophy, but everything we see of these people isn't even close to an extreme. This is just people being like, hey, hey, you know, joking around. Hell, I have probably been more rowdy than that in life. I, I'd have to think about that, but I'm probably sure I have. I get really silly sometimes, you know? Most of us do. And yet she looks down at them like barbarians. That's my point. They were trying to diverge these two cultures, and they didn't have the time or the know-how to do it. So they were just like, you're kids, and you're this stuffy adult. So rowdy kids, specifically, excuse me, rowdy kids and stuffy adult. And that's how we're going to contrast you two. That bothered me a little bit, because even in the episode, in my opinion, they do a good job of contrasting them outside of that. The Sovereign is kind, polite, and understanding in almost all things. In fact, she is overawed by how beautiful the ship is. She just stands out the window staring at space as they're going by, like she's in wonderment over it. You get the impression these people are, let's call them, uh, sector-bound, right? Like, like, obviously these people know that space travel exists and have interstellar capabilities, but they probably don't go particularly far outside their back door, if you follow my meaning here. Um, we've actually seen a lot of races in Star Trek who are like that. Not every race goes across the whole you know, quarter of the galaxy like you know the Vulcans or the humans or whatever do. So you could see that in her presentation, and you could see that kind of appreciation. While she comes over, and she's just asked for a glass of water, but she still has to taste test it before offering it to her. And then she mentions all the different types of food things she can do, and their approach on servants. Servants being free and valued but nevertheless remaining servants, a, dis a distinct and clear lesser step in the totem pole. That's cultural distinction. By contrast, we also see a tiny little snippet insight into the gatherer culture. When the gentleman is found dead, he says, you found him? That's right, and he's the last of his clan, so I lay claim. Okay, I'll allow it. The fact that he waited to do that until he covered it with his boss, with the local head, the fact that we get the implication that rights of property and ownership distribute amongst clans. 
the fact that someone can claim it based on unique circumstances, you know, if in this case, like I said, he found him, that's culture right there. That helps distinguish them. I wish we had a little bit more of that and a little bit less of the... <laughs> I actually feel, weirdly enough, that a lot of that sits on the director, but I don't know because I haven't read the script for this one. Um, so I don't know if this is the script or the director or both, but I, it's, it's not that close, right? It's like I said, that's why this episode bothers me. Uh, so what I find funny is in the earlier part of this episode, they go down and they see an ambush coming, so they decide to go ahead and fight back. I love the counter-ambush. Like, I really, really do. It's very smart, and it's... <laughs> Once again, we see Season 3 TNG is doing going out of its way to not techno-babble and to have you know legitimate ways of thinking their way around problems in front of them. They do this twice in this episode. Once to escape this ambush, and once to deal with uh, figuring out the mystery. They just use cross-examination and information from all the sources they have available in order to try and deduce a solution. Bam. I like that. And I find I find it funny, though, because I commented on the ambush and their counter-ambush with basically the, something along the lines of, why not just negotiate from a position of strength? We've seen TNG do this before. We've seen Star Trek in general do this before. We are simply stronger than you. But we do not want to hurt you. If we wanted to hurt you, you would be very hurt. Will you talk with us? Now, the reason that's funny is if you've seen this episode, especially recently, you remember, that's what happens at the end of the episode, when they go to the actual ship with the actual gatherer leader on board, and it's like, hey, and there's this great bit where Patrick Stewart just has his arms folded like this. Or maybe it's behind his back, I actually remember. But he's very calm, he's very professional, as, you know, the ship's just shaking. And they're not doing any damage to the Enterprise. They're just firing and firing, and nothing's happening. And then finally I was like, all right, <clears throat> Um, target their shields. One shot. Bzzz, shields gone. Oh, now they're hailing us. That's exactly what I was talking about. We have no desire to hurt you. And we have just demonstrated this through very obvious thing because we vastly outpower you. Will you talk with us? It's also, and I know this is kind of wrong of me to say this, but it's also a relief to see this type of diplomacy rather than season one diplomacy. And anybody who's watched my ruminations knows exactly what I mean by that. <sighs> so, um, Yuda kills the old guy. <laughs> Once again, the music is so obvious, it keeps just, it keeps drawing itself to my attention. I know that sounds weird, but anytime it not, it's not Ron Jones, I swear to God, it's like, well, who is doing the music for this? It's so overt. Like, she wanders off to talk to the guy, and the music goes, da -na -na -na. something evil's about to happen, and then she kills him. <laughs> right? I, sh I shouldn't have done that. Give me a second. <laughs> she, she's just, it's so obvious about it. Anyways. So, they have this ten forward scene. I like this ten forward scene. First of all, it's a nice little bit between Wesley and uh, Brule. Now, I don't really know the actor who plays Brawl. It feels like he doesn't really know how to act outside of the rowdy. Because even when he's saying lines of sincerity, he comes across as just, yeah, hey, yeah, whatever. But I do like his proclamation to Wesley. I got two kids. One of them's about your age. He's not that good at math, though. I want a better future for them. 
That's nice. That's good. That's relatable. It also explains why he decided to go over to Wesley, of all people, to talk to him. Because he's the only one in that room he has any kind of connection to. The only relatable point in all of this social dynamic was the kid who's about his son's age. That's nice. And Wesley, of course, is like, no, I don't like you because you're thieves. Now, the way he says that is ridiculous. But it makes sense. Wesley, remember, has lived a very sheltered life. He's also a Starfleet baby, like through and through. His mother and father were both in Starfleet, and his surrogate father, yeah, you know the one, uh, is also in Starfleet. And he is arguably in Starfleet. He has got that through and through, and while they have started to make Wesley more of a character in Season 3, he's still coming from that mindset of, let's call it the moral box. And anything outside that box is just, right? No, I'm not throwing shade here. I get it. I understand. I've done that too. I still do that to some extent with certain aspects of life that I find uncomfortable. Like, black licorice. God, can you believe people actually like black licorice? But, um, my point is, even though what Wesley says is a little bit, it is fully in character and fully understandable. And you notice, as the guy talks to him and talks about why he's doing this, Wesley calms down considerably and starts to see that this isn't just a thief. And I like that, too. I also like how Yuta goes over to Riker and Troy, and they are both, you know, enjoying this meal. And then Yuta says, oh, no, I do not want to intercede. And it is Troy who picks up immediately on the the sparks flying between Riker and Yuta and says, oh, no, I'll bow out. I like that especially in the wake of uh, the price, which we just had. I'm not much for shipping, but I've always enjoyed, basically from season three and onwards, the character dynamic between Troy and Riker. I think a lot of that comes down to the actors. They both really have great chemistry together, and they know how to act like an old married couple together, in a good way. I know that sounds weird, but this is another example that she picks up immediately on this, and without hesitation, decides to go up and she'll give up her seat for her, so Riker can have this little moment with her. No resentment, no anger, no, oh, well, you know. No, this is someone Riker's interested in who's interested in him, and if she can make him happy, that makes Troy happy. Now, I also point that out because, again, I just watched The Prize. I I tend to do these back-to-back. And you remember how Rawl, I think, was really, really just laying it on hard when it comes to his, you know, attempted seduction of Troy? Riker is basically the exact opposite of that. In fact, I found it funny where there's this bit in the episode where he says, was I being that obvious? And she says, well, yes. Which is, I mean, yeah, obviously he is indicating his interest, but he's doing it in a much more Riker way. It's... (laughs) The, the, the contrast, the contrast between him and his, you know, I prefer equals, um, I would love to sample some of your food, uh, food a la yuta, you know. The way he does that is so much more, hmm, I guess the word I want to use is respectful. And I don't want to use that word because that word tends to be misused, especially when it comes to romantic entanglements. But I think it's the only word I can come up with that really fits here. This is really hammered through when she kisses him, and he's like, well, that's awesome, but hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. 
you want this, right? Like, I want this if you want this. I don't want a servant. And that just feels very Riker to me. And I like that. It also gives one other tiny little input into the culture of these people. That a servant, while free to disagree with doing something like that, would, if they didn't disagree, just do it. Not because they wanted to, but because they were ordered to and didn't object to it. Make of that what you will. Uh, I don't like the date between the two of them, but before I cover that, before I cover that, he flat out says, you know, you, you're missing freedom. And she says, I can never have that. One of the reasons I think this episode succeeds is because of you to herself. The actress does a good job of portraying someone who clearly feels absolutely obligated to do this, even though she has had enough of a life that is outside of that, to basically be someone other than that. In other words, God, I don't even know how to explain this. It makes perfect sense in my head. Like, imagine you're in a cage. This cage has to kill these people. You don't really want to. You have other parts of your life, your perspective, your fully fleshed out individual, but you're in a cage. I know that's a terrible analogy, but that's exactly what I was picturing, and the actress's performance really got that across. Her line, I can never have that, just made me go, ooh, especially since, you know, I've, I've seen the episode, so I know what's coming. Um, and you could tell that this is something that really bothers her. But she also is still in that cage, unwilling or unable to move on from the cycle of hatred, which is, of course, again, the main theme of the work. I also love a subtle little touch. After, right after the, the dinner date thing, where they're, they're eating her whatever alayuta, Crusher calls her and says, Will, could you help me with something? And I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but I picked up on the fact that Crusher called him Will. You'll notice I don't do that, um, and I bring that up because, in, in my opinion, usually I refer to these people by a certain name as a sign of respect. Riker, Picard, etc. I am not these characters' friends. They're fictional, I'm real, and I am not the actor's friend. So I usually either use the actor's full name or I try to use the actor's last name, again, as a sign of respect. I slip up sometimes, but that's the idea. There's a familiarity involved with using someone's first name like that. And I mention that because it goes back to what I talked about with regards to Riker's command style and what he himself says in this episode. I prefer equals. Riker is first officer of the Enterprise. Functionally, he has about a thousand people under his belt. And he has to take control of them and, co and order them around. Remember, first officer, especially as we learn later on, has to do with a lot of the personnel issues on a ship, too. But he doesn't like to think of them as servants. He likes to think of them as equals. He will give them orders, but they are not less than him. And that is a key distinction in his approach and nicely contrasted by the servant dynamic I mentioned earlier and actually happens in the very next scene. So I like to think that several people on this ship call him William or Will or whatever. Moving on. So then we get to the actual uh, uh, date scene, which I... Shoot, where was I actually? Um... The date, right, where they go and they start making out and then we learn about, you know, I don't want a servant. The, the, you're going to make fun of me, but I wish there was no intimacy, no physical intimacy in that. I wish there was physical affection instead. Let me explain myself. I would have liked it better if they had just had a 
friendship with flirting rather than mwah mwah. Now I know this is television and you use mwah mwah as a shorthand for love interest of the week, which is exactly what Yuta is. I just disagree with that because, again, I don't feel a lot was actually done with it. I like the dynamic between the two characters, but I feel it would have been better served if instead they had been close without being intimate. You know, he mentions, what about dessert? And maybe he could introduce her to poker. Like, I know that sounds weird, but couldn't you see that as a way of the two opening up to each other, learning more about each other, and, like, just, you know, what do you think for dessert? You know, a cut, and the camera's coming in on the scene, and we're expecting some sexy whatever, but instead he's sitting there teaching her how to play poker. And there's, like, two plates of, like, some dessert-looking thing, which they've obviously already gone through, and show her having relaxed considerably in this moment. Show the two getting close to each other, mentally, emotionally, and then the beginnings of affection, you know, being holding hands or being close, like shoulder to shoulder, or wrapping an arm around a shoulder, or something like that. Don't go just straight into the moi-moi. Show there's something developing there. It adds more impact because it's more real when he has to kill her. And that brings me to that big point. <laughs> he has to kill her. Why is that? No, I'm really curious. Anybody out there, can you please tell me why he had to kill her? I'm listening. <laughs> that final scene is actually very well done, with a couple of notable exceptions. As everyone else in the universe has pointed out, Picard doesn't react at all because Patrick Stewart had to stay silent because they were doing a transition shot basically on his face. <laughs> so, you know, Picard's just... Oh, well, my first officer just murdered someone. Okay. I shouldn't say that. He killed her, not murdered her. But, can, why does he kill her? This leads me to some good stuff and some bad stuff. First of all, the good stuff. I like how the actress portrays Yuta basically losing it in that moment. She wants so badly not to have to do this. She wants so desperately for this to work out. And yet she knows it's not going to. Again, she's in that cage. And you could just see that conflict on her. In fact, it's funny because she's completely smooth and calm until Riker shows up and points the phaser at her. And you'll notice one of her first actions is to basically make a, like, a lunge as if she's going to run to... I don't remember his name. The bad guy. Or not the bad guy. The, the, the big guy. The, the leader of the gathers. I can't remember his name. He wasn't as memorable as Brule. And he's like, huh, okay... Nope, alright. And then Riker stuns her, and they keep talking this over, and, they, and you know all the exposition comes out, and exactly what happened. Which brings me to one of the bad things. So these people, who have pretty basic non, non-high-tech stuff, can somehow genetically engineer someone to, li- to basically not age for 50 or 53 years, and be phaser-resistant. Now that part's important because it was implied in the episode and in some of the background material that the whole reason he had to shoot her was because the stun setting wasn't working. I don't really believe that. She certainly seemed to be recoiling from the stun setting. He could have just kept stunning her. (laughs) Stun her until she's down, right? Something. But no, she's apparently stun resistant, so he has to vaporize her. 
And I really don't get that. In the background material, the book's over there. It's out of reach. I'm not going to grab it. But in the background material, they said, we always knew we had to kill her. Why? Why is that a necessary step of the script? Again, pull yourself out of character for a second. Obviously, there are, there, there's probably an argument for why you'd kill her in character. I can't think of one, but maybe you guys can. And I anticipate seeing some in the comments when this episode goes live. But out of character, the person writing the script insisted that she had to die. Why? What's the purpose behind that? What does that add to the situation? The only thing I could come up with is the idea of ending the cycle of hatred. But ending the cycle of hatred by killing one of the people in charge, or, you know, not in charge, in, in, the, in the cycle, doesn't seem like a good way to make that happen. Now, I know no one's left to defend her, but whatever. Anyways, it's just a weird thing. And, of course, she just doesn't age and is vasor-resistant, so whatever. But I do feel for you to there to be so close to finally getting rid of this cage. Imagine if she'd gotten away with it. Imagine if she'd walked over and touched him and, and walked back and he just fell over with a heart attack. I mean, there would be some suspicion, but, I mean, she just was handing him a glass of water, right? Or brandy, excuse me. And they could scan the brandy, that's fine. And then she might have been able to have a life again. But when the, as soon as the cat was out of the bag and the other murders were placed on her, she realized she had no life left. That was it. That was over. The only thing left to her was try to finish her mission, which is why she ended up lunging for him. I mean, what else are you going to do in that situation? Riker's like, please don't do this. What other choice does she have? So... Uh, that's actually, I think, all I've got on the episode. I have a note here. I don't want to be negative about Voyager, but one of the things that really bothered me about Voyager was how often they would encounter an alien race of the week, the threat of the week, who was just massively stronger than Voyager was. That used to bug the crap out of me. Uh, TNG has done that several times in season one and two. That, that trend starts to go away pretty much from now on uh, in TNG. And I noticed that because the scene where he's just, you know, where the, the enemy ship is barely doing anything to them, immediately contrasted that in my mind. If this was Voyager, I, I could just picture, shields at 70%, shields at 30%, all right, knock out their shields with a quantum refazenance reckoning being. Okay, all right, you willing to talk now? Like, you could just see that's how they would do that scene, right? Anyways, I'm sorry. I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this weird episode. I'll be seeing you guys next time.